0: Dominique Collett is a force of nature whose journey through life has led her through the corporate halls of some of the world's leading investment banking institutions and consulting firms. Following a successful exit at the incredibly successful fintech startup she co-founded, Time, which was acquired by the Commonwealth Bank of Australia for a rumored 13 million US dollars, give or take, Dominique has gone on to become a financial services investor and innovation architect who now inhabits a senior role at Rand Merchant Insurance Holdings. She is no doubt one of the most talented, well-informed, and influential players on South Africa's fintech scene. This is African Tech Conversations. So Dominique, your Twitter bio reads as follows. Fintech investor and innovation architect trying to deliver solutions that make Africa a better place for all. WIFE dog lover, runner, yogi, bit nuts. Is that a short list of your priorities, basically?
1: I would say that's a, that's a good summary of my priorities.
0: <laughs> okay. And so how long have you been married? I'm just going to pick randomly from that, from that priority list.
1: So I'll be married four years on the 3rd of September, but I've been with Brian for seven years. What does he do? He is an investment banker, but he's just set up his own advisory firm. So he's also stepping into this entrepreneurial environment.
0: So tell me, if he were to hijack your Twitter bio authorship for a moment, would it it sound any different? Would it look any different? How would he describe you?
1: I think he would maybe start with saying that I was a bit nuts. (laughs) So he would say that I was a bit bit nuts. Then he would talk about me being a wife. But I think he would describe it very similarly. He's very supportive of my ideals and my goals. And we definitely are a team. So I think he's also trying to deliver better solutions. He's also very interested in fintech. He also shares very similar goals. So it's great. He's also a runner. He's also into yoga. So we'd probably actually end up writing a very similar Twitter bio.
0: And winning the comrades together.
1: Oh no! Oh no! Oh no! He's the comrades runner. I'm just the very. I'm just the very poor runner <laughs> that sort of supports him on the side.
0: Okay. Well, word is you were a bit of an overachiever uh, growing up, didn't your siblings hate you?
1: My sister probably did a little bit, but she's like my second mom. She's about six years older than me, so luckily I had. She was like my second mom, so she's actually very proud.
0: This is awesome. So let me let me do a quick check here. Um, Parktown Girls Old Girl? Correct. You did something like earn an honor called the Ducks Scholarum. I'm going to pretend I know what that means.
1: (laughs) It means that I was the top student at my school.
0: I'm starting to hate you a bit myself. Uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was a nerd. I was I was a bona fide nerd. I was a proper nerd. I was a geek.
0: Well, the list carries on. So hang in there, everyone. Um, You earned Academic Colours at Rose University, where you earned your Bachelor of Science degree in Economics and Financial Management, and were a member of the Golden Key Society. Isn't that the club where you need to have like a certified uh, IQ of 140 or something like that?
1: No, that's Mensa. You're one of the honour roll students, so you've done fairly well in your academic career.
0: Oh yes, of course, big difference. And... (laughs) And then you earned a master's uh, in finance at London Business School. You must have had fun doing all this. I mean, please tell me you were because otherwise it just looks like a lot of pain on paper.
1: No, I mean, I think I was always a big believer in work hard, party hard, and I had a lot of fun in my 20s, especially when I was at university. I was at Rhodes University, which is the best university in the country, Um, and I'm a big believer that you can only get so far on academic achievements, but it's really important to spend a lot of time making friendships, having a lot of fun, and becoming a well-rounded person. So I did a lot of other extramural activities. I had a lot of fun, so trust me, I didn't just study, and a lot of my friends will tell you that as well.
0: Right, so that that makes me curious about what kind of parents you must have had. You grew up in Johannesburg, correct?
1: That's correct. I'm Josie, born and bred.
0: Right, so what kind of parents did you have? What did they make of this child who seemed to have a propensity for learning? and, And what kind of sibling was your sister? Was she the total opposite? Was she just as studious or...?
1: So my sister's very different to me. My sister's quite shy. She's quite introverted. Look, my sister's also incredibly smart. She's also done really well. She's also a banker. Um, But she's quite different to me. My parents, I don't think, quite knew what to do with me. Um, I was quite different from the rest of my family, but they were incredibly supportive. Um, I grew up with a single mom. I think that's where I learned a lot of my work ethic. I think when you grow up with a single mom, you really understand what it means to work hard and to try really hard. Um, my mom's my role model. She's an incredible career woman as well. And I just had amazingly supportive parents. I mean, my mother, um, she, she pushed me hard as well. I mean, she realized that I had a lot of potential and she did everything that she could for me. I mean, she ferried me everywhere, whether it was debating competitions or inter-high quiz evenings or, I mean, she really stood by me on all of that. But um, I don't think it could have been easy for them. I was very challenging and I mean I'll be the first to admit I was a difficult teenager. Well
0: at least you're getting those grades.
1: <laughs> exactly so that's how I always made up for it.
0: <laughs> so tell me um, about what you remember wanting to be like as early as far back as you can remember what did you grow up wanting to become?
1: So I'll tell you a funny story when I was 23 I had a complete meltdown because when I used to play with my Barbies when I was younger, my Barbies were lawyers and astrophysicists. <laughs> and they were always 23. So, when I did turn 23 and I wasn't a qualified lawyer and an astrophysicist, I did think to myself, what am I doing with my life?
0: <laughs> and what had you done up until that point? So, what were you at 23?
1: I was, a, I was at Standard Bank and I was an investment banker. So, I felt like, you know, so it was good, but it wasn't quite being an astrophysicist and a lawyer by 23 <laughs>
0: Yeah, you're an absolute loser uh, in my books. I mean, <laughs> investment backer by 23. Yeah, absolutely right. So, how did you get over the meltdown, though?
1: I just, my friends basically told me to, to get over myself and they took me out and they basically got some perspective <laughs> into, in, into me. So, I have great friends.
0: That's awesome. Now, you know, one wonders if that's the kind of undeniable commitment to excellence that women in finance and tech must have in order to begin to enjoy the respect and recognition that their male counterparts might enjoy by default. Uh, is that Has that been the case for you? Have you felt the pressure to sort of excel at that level uh, with that intensity in order to just sort of be at par?
1: So I think, I've, been, I've always been very hard on myself from a young age, and I think I've been a high achiever from a young age. I was lucky. I went to an all-girls school at high school, and I think the great thing there was that we were taught that we were no different from men. And I think we were able to single-mindedly focus on pursuing excellence. So I don't think I had a very strong sense that I was different from men. Um, even when I entered the work environment, I was always very comfortable being the only woman. Um, but I've always just had a very single-minded dedication to what I wanted to do. Um, in some ways, I felt being a woman has been advantageous. I think uh, we see things differently. I think we bring a different element, um, which makes us unique, which makes us interesting. And I felt it to be, advan- uh, as I said, I felt it to be advantageous. But it does require you to work incredibly hard. It does require you to, to make sure that you're always on top of your game. But I certainly don't think that you, you need to play a victim card or that you need to feel discriminated against. You can make your own opportunities as long as, you are, as long as you're dedicated to being excellent.
0: And so how many times a week would you say on average, does the do you get a, a, a signal or a reminder from the industry or from your work environment or you know from anything around you that reminds you, hang on, um, I see you, you're a woman. In, in this in this world we call, you know, finance or tech, how often does that happen? Say on in the average week.
1: Probably every day. I mean, bear in mind that most often I am one of the only women in the meetings, although I'm very privileged at the moment. Currently at RMI, it's 60% women. We're a senior investment executive team. There's three of us and two of us are women. That is very rare. It's really rare. And it's credit to our phenomenal CEO who really supports strong women. But I think before coming here, I was very used to being the only woman. I became used to being the only woman in meetings. Um, and maybe because I became so used to it, it just, you know, I didn't really notice it at the end. But I mean, it's something that you see every day.
0: Being somewhat of a hybrid myself, you know, operating at the intersection, in my case of, of broadcasting tech and entrepreneurship, uh, I'm fascinated by fellow hybrids. Uh, and what does your intersection look like? What do you consider yourself first, a finance professional or a tech pro?
1: I think I, I've, I've definitely got a much stronger finance skill set. Um, it happens to have been applied in tech most recently. Um, so I think I'd say finance first and then tech.
0: Can you trace back to where that started to happen, you becoming this hybrid?
1: It's funny because it's, it's now, I, it's very focused on me sort of working in fintech, but actually my very first job was looking at the hybrid of banking and technology. And that was 11 years ago. And when I was working in strategic investments at Standard Bank, that was the first time that we were seeing this massive disintermediation of banking by things like retailers and new technology firms, et cetera. And that was my first role, was looking at these new technologically enabled firms. So it's probably been part of my entire working life. Um, And it's been a common thread through everything that I've done.
0: And can you name some people or business experiences or point out business experiences that were formative to this process?
1: So, probably one of the most life-changing events was obviously being part of the founding team at time. Um, And that was my foray into the entrepreneurial world. And that was when it stopped being theoretical and it became an everyday reality. Um, The opportunity to start a business from scratch to work with amazing people and to go through the fear (laughs) of starting a business. Um, Also to be part of something from the start. And I think that changed me as a person it, um, it made me confront a lot of fears that I'd had. It made me have a true appreciation for how something actually works. You can't buy that experience. You can't learn that until you do it. Um, everything that I've done in my career has, has given me something, but that was probably one of the things that shaped me the most. Um, obviously, every job has, you know, my time at McKinsey gave me a skill set and a tool set to be able to analyze things in a different way. My time at Standard Bank w- enabled me to think about about how do you invest from a proprietary perspective. Um, My job at time was, you know, the entrepreneurial journey and now thinking about things as an investor. So I've had a very unique career history and I've kind of now thought about business on all different levels.
0: So please tell me more about co-founding time, uh, what the business did in a nutshell, and uh, I have a few more questions after that.
1: Sure. So the purpose of time was to make financial services as accessible as mobile communications. So that was our purpose. And really what it was founded was the principle that in order to deliver financial services, you had to start from scratch. We had started to deliver... Uh, banking models to the bottom of the pyramid while we were a team at Standard Bank and we realized that it was very difficult to deliver banking products when you were coming at it from a lot of legacy. So when you were dealing with legacy systems you had to deal with a legacy brand etc and we said what if we had to design Bank 3.0 and what if we had a blank sheet of paper what would it look like Um, and that's where the idea was born. So basically what Time did was that it designed a transactional bank account um, that was delivered at a cost level that made it affordable for anyone in the country. So we were able to deliver banking services to a social grant recipient who was earning a thousand rand a month. Um, The true success around Time was that we um, operated within the regulatory environment and a lot of our innovation was around using some of the regulatory opportunities that were afforded us. We had phenomenal design thinking, we had incredible technology And we also had amazing deals that we had done with Pick and Pay and with MTN. So it was the perfect storm that we had. We weren't just tech. We weren't just banking regulation. We weren't just big deals. It was uh, the unique combination of all of it together. And by doing that, we launched in December, um, November 2012, and we were able to open up a million bank accounts in our first nine months. Um, We were one of the top 10 mobile money deployments globally. Um, And it it was an incredible business. It was an absolutely incredible business.
0: In case you're you, you wanting to Google the company, it's time with a Y. It says T-Y-M-E. And according to the Australian Financial Review, you and your partners sold time to the Commonwealth Bank of Australia for around mm, 365 million rand. Can you confirm this? And are you allowed to say exactly what you walked away
1: with? No.
0: <laughs> I thought I might try sneak that in. So why do you think it's common for details of acquisition and exit deals uh, in Africa to remain, you know, on, on the low low, you know?
1: So I think a lot of them, because they're um, acquired by corporates and they, they they sold out 100%, corporates don't want those deals disclosed. Um, and I think it's just often um, the DNA of corporates of how they do deals. They just don't want to disclose that sort of information. Um, they feel that these deals are proprietary and they're not required to disclose that information.
0: Right, and the deal was deemed highly strategic for CBA. What did they find? Well, I suppose you've answered that in in, in, in some respect. I was going to ask what they found irresistible about your, your offering, uh, you essentially bringing banking services to the unbanked at a price point they could never manage doing things the way they'd always done.
1: I think what was unique about time was that we were able to build an industrial-strength uh, banking capability, um, and we were able to understand the regulatory environments. We were able to combine... Traditional bank thinking, and we were able to bring best of breed banking practices into the new into the new world. And I think it was a it was a way of thinking about um, designing bank products for the bottom end of the pyramid. So if you can design a bank product for someone who's earning 800 rand a month or getting a social grant for 800 rand a month, there's no reason why that bank account can't be used for someone who's earning 8,000 rand a month. The problem is, is when you design a bank account for someone who earns eight th- or sort of earns eighty thousand rand a month, you can never bring it back down so i think it was simple it was transparent it was easy to use and for that reason it was applicable to any bank in the world but cba you know they want to use it to grow into the emerging markets and it was an amazing team
0: was it always the plan to you know to exit i mean from inception or or was this just a deal you know you and your partners couldn't turn down how obsessed should a startup founder listening to this thinking about exit
1: I think if you design a business for exit, you're going to fail. That's my very strong belief. Um, In order to build a business, you have to have a higher purpose. Um, The whole purpose of time was to make banking accessible. And that was the higher purpose that we all subjugated ourselves to. Um, There was a great saying that I heard last week, which is that if you're not building something that is greater than yourself, then you're failing. And I think if you focus, if you build a business with just focusing on exit or making money, then you're not doing something to change the world. I think you need to build a business that is ambitious, that is taking on the world, that you really believe is gonna change the world. And exiting a business isn't changing the world. And I think if you have that kind of passion and that kind of energy, you become irresistible. And um, we didn't build the business to exit. We built the bu- we built the business to change the face of banking. Um, what happened to come along was a partner who, uh, who understood that. Um, and you know you, you don't know what's gonna happen on the entrepreneurial journey, um, but you're not gonna build an A-list team and you're not gonna get people to put in 20 hours a day if the, your only purpose is money. It has to be something bigger than that. That's the only advice I can give on entrepreneurs.
0: Well, the picture I'm getting in my mind is, is one of this beautiful consensus around um, a passionate team that's built an amazing product, a huge corporate that sees the value in it, um, total consensus around the value of this idea and a deal being struck and then singing kumbaya around the boardroom table (laughs) is is that what the valuation process the negotiation process kind of looked like
1: that's never how valuations and and sort of deal negotiations ever go (laughs) i think that's how um when when sort of partners first meet that's how it goes and i think after six months of hard negotiation everyone's just exhausted um so you know unfortunately the reality of negotiating deals whether it's trying to secure a distribution deal whether it's trying to negotiate an exit whether it's trying to negotiate funding they're hard they are hard. Um,
0: and what's the one thing you would let me make it two. What are the two takeaways from that process you might you might share? What would you share with people who are dabbling?
1: I think the two things is that, first of all, make sure that your, your hygiene is in order. And what I mean by that is never go into discussions without having your facts at hand. Um, I think we saw that, and particularly in our early days when we were negotiating our first big deal with MTN, we were always negotiating from a position of strength because we always had our facts and figures. We never went into discussions where we were vague, especially when you're talking about financials. I think we see what I see from our position now is that we've got guys who may understand tech or they may understand the details of some parts of their business, but they're not financially savvy. They haven't got things like their tax certificates in order. They haven't got their financial recon systems in order. And that's the stuff that can trip you up. When you're dealing with big partners, make sure that you are on top of all of your facts and figures because otherwise you're going to get found out. The second thing is when you w- when you step into a deal, know what your walkaway points are. Because if you're going to go in pretending that you've, that you are going to walk away and then you don't, you get found out again. Know what you want out of the thing and don't have false bravado. I imagine
0: that being born at Deloitte, if I'm correct, the the, the whole idea around time was sort of hatched at Deloitte mm. and, and benefiting from uh, the business network that comes uh, you know with that sort of pedigree, uh, as well as some of the partners you mentioned, pick and pay, MTN, uh, I imagine those kind of things were, were key to their success at at time. If you could pin it down to one thing that you could call the secret source of that whole business, what would it be?
1: The people. Without a shadow of the doubt, it was the right people in the room. Um the founding team was an amazing group of people who had passion, who had energy. They were some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. They were some of the craziest people I've ever worked
0: with. <laughs> Where do you find these people? Is it because it came out of a place like Deloitte that makes it a project that the, the smartest, the, the most talented, are drawn to, or is it? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining someone listening right now. Who, who might not be so lucky to have a, a business concept born with such pedigree? Where do they find these people?
1: So, we had a visionary, and our visionary was Konrad Juncker, who was the CEO of the business. And Konrad had uh, had a dream of, of what a world looked like with banking for everyone. Um, Konrad was the glue that kept the team together. Um, uh, Konrad brought in uh, one of the other co founders, Chart. Um, who was the yin to his yang um, and between the two of them they were able to draw in the right people um, it was a team of people that had often worked together before we had history we were people that trusted each other um, and you know when you've got that chemistry when you've got a leader there was a great there's a great video that anyone listening should watch it's called be the first follower um, if you don't have the great idea yourself um, if you identify someone whose vision and passion you you believe in, follow them and take that bold step. Um, but it comes down to don't start an entrepreneurial venture unless the people that you're going to be working with you trust implicitly with your life. And that's the thing that I could say with that team at Time. We all trusted each other implicitly.
0: Now, does someone like you come out of a successful enterprise like that feeling super confident about their ability to build something out of nothing Or does that experience leave you wounded and cautiously optimistic about what it means to actually build something from nothing?
1: Both. (laughs) You come out inspired because you leave a lot of your fears behind. Um, I think you know, for me, one of the great experiences was being, realizing that I could leave a lot of my corporate attachments behind. You know, I'd had a very traditional path up until then. I'd been in amazing organizations like McKinsey, like Standard Bank, where I'd been on very clear career paths. And I'd had a lot of attachment to those sorts of securities. Um, and freeing myself from that was amazing because I unlocked a lot of creativity um, once you lose some of attachment to that. Um, You lose a lot of your naivety because you understand how hard it really is to build things. Um, But you also develop a lot of deep empathy because you can really deeply empathize with people who are on a similar journey. So that's why I say something like that really fundamentally changes you. Um, And it it hardens you, it softens you, it inspires you. Um, But I think overall it made me a better person.
0: Would you say you're inherently entrepreneurial or are you good at at helping entrepreneurial minded people develop their creative ideas into a proper business?
1: It's interesting because I often used to wonder if I, was a, if I was entrepreneurial inclined and then I thought back to it. So my first entrepreneurial venture was when I was seven. My mother was a medical rep and she had, um, those were the days before um, all the pharmaceutical companies got under a lot of scrutiny. So she used to have a lot of free gifts like um, pens and, and cool things. So I used to sell those in the neighborhood for a very good markup because they were free. <laughs> And then throughout high school, I always had a lot of businesses on the side and throughout university, for example, I ran my own tutoring company, et cetera. So I think I've always been very good at supporting myself financially and always having some little business. Um, So I think I am quite entrepreneurial um, and I certainly know how to to support myself and I think I'm very excited by new ventures. I'm very excited by new ideas. Um, So I, I think I would back myself in an entrepreneurial world.
0: How much of the career you've enjoyed has been you intentionally seeking it out? And how much of it has been sort of being in the right place at the right time?
1: Sure. I think everything's down to, um, I would love to say that it's all down to the fact that I'm so fantastic, but it's not. It's the fact that I've been blessed with a lot of opportunities. Um, I've always said to people that if you follow purely money, you won't... You're not going to have an amazing career. I've always stuck with people who I find inspiring, and I've always gone to I've always gone to jobs where I believe I'm going to be working for someone who's going to teach me something, who is inspiring and where I'm going to be working on interesting things. Um, and I've just been offered the most phenomenal opportunities. Um, and I think that's the biggest advice that I can give to people is make sure every day that you're doing something that inspires you.
0: The South African startup scene is sometimes criticised, and I'm speaking in terms of tech now. It's sometimes criticised as being all about hype rather than actually building viable businesses. This, this debate flies. You know, Cape Town throws throws daggers at Joerg, and what are your thoughts on that in terms of gauging the health of, of what the the quality of startups coming up in South Africa first and in Africa?
1: So, I think we've got the beginnings of a great ecosystem, and I think we're seeing some phenomenal entrepreneurs. And I think, you know, people can be very disparaging about South Africa, but I mean, if we think about it, we've produced some phenomenal businesses. I mean, within our portfolio, we've got Assurance and Discovery, which by any standard – are are world-class businesses. Um, And we produce entrepreneurs like Adrian Gore, like Philomeres, like um, uh, Stephen at Investec. So South Africa doesn't have a problem with talent. Um, And we do see some amazing businesses. I think the biggest issue we have is there might be a disconnect in this market as to how hard people have to work. I think there sometimes are unrealistic expectations um, and especially I think people might spend too much time focusing on the valuation of businesses internationally and they don't realize um, how hard some of those people have worked and where South Africa is right now. I'm very excited by the talent that we see, but people have to realize how hard you have to work to build a business. And I think there's a slight disconnect sometimes.
0: What about funds like 88 miles per hour and Spark of Nigeria, both basically saying, you know, they won't be investing in any new startups for another 36 months. Meanwhile, you have, you know, an entity like Nest coming in from Hong Kong going, this is where it's at. Who's right
1: So I think anyone who doesn't see opportunity in South Africa is missing something. I think there are a lot of challenges in South Africa, but wherever there are challenges means that there's massive opportunity. Um, And I think if you have an optimistic mindset, you'll find, because at the moment, given how challenging it is, it means that people have to find solutions. Um, And I think given that we've got a very strong regulatory environment, we've got an incredibly strong legislative environment, we've got well-developed capital markets, it can only mean that we are going to be developing phenomenal businesses. So I would see those things in our favor. And we've also got an incredible talent base to work from here. So I I see nothing but positive coming out of here. And I'm, I'm quite sad when I see people exiting the scene because I do think they're missing a trick here.
0: And of course, the the funds I've mentioned, you know, their portfolios are very you know tech heavy. Of course, uh, if you can, please share some insight into where c- traditional venture capital might be in terms of warming up to fintech, maybe or tech in general.
1: So, I think the challenge you have is this convergence between financial services and tech is an interesting space. So. You have pure tech players, and I don't pretend to understand pure tech or or be a particularly savvy investor in that. It requires a different mindset. But fintech is not necessarily pure tech. And I think what we're tending to see is that, guys, in order to build a proper fintech business, at some stage you're going to have to understand the financial services environment and i think that's where the the funding environment is going to change slightly because traditional vc firms that are just funding pure tech plays don't necessarily understand all the regulatory pieces and unfortunately you can't escape that <laughs> and i think it requires a different mindset and requires a different skill set and um, you have to start to understand all these different industries, and you have to understand all these different industry verticals. And you can't avoid the, You can't avoid legislation. You can't avoid regulation. So rather, eng- rather embrace it. And if you're not geared for that then you're going to struggle. I think also you have to recognize that certain industries require deeper J-curves. They don't always allow you to do an exit in three years or to do an exit in five years. So you have to change your thinking, especially in a market like South Africa or the rest of Africa, where you don't have the same level of development. It takes a lot longer to build an ecosystem. It takes a lot longer for a business to become profitable. So you have to think completely differently.
0: And how much old money are we seeing? By old money, I mean money that's traditionally gone into mining projects, agriculture, property, retail, and so on. How much of that kind of money is going, hey, maybe, maybe I should look into fintech or tech in general?
1: To be honest with you, in South Africa, and this is my personal opinion, I haven't seen much of that shift yet. Uh, we're still seeing, we're seeing a lot of the financial services firms moving into fintech. We're seeing a lot of the banks, but they've never left fintech. So this is not a new thing. You know, Standard Bank and Barclays and stuff have always invested in fintech. They've always invested in new financial services firm, um, firms, you know. I think what we are maybe starting to see is some of the the VCs or some of the private equity firms. But again, they've always been <laughs> investors into fintech. I don't think we're seeing cross-industry stuff yet.
0: What about the, in- the angel investment scene uh, in terms of… Uh, people who might be interested in throwing a couple of bucks into something and seeing what happens? Is there a swell?
1: In my experience in the South African scene, the angel investing is vibrant and the seed funding is vibrant. So if you're an early stage business, to get your first $1 million is fairly easy. And even to get your first $5 million in that seed stage is fairly easy. Where we're really struggling in this country is in your growth capital. So there's a lot of activity in that early stage. There's a lot of guys who've made some good money who really want to be part of the scene, and they're investing quite heavily, they're providing a lot of mentorship, but we're not quite good for that growth capital yet.
0: Yeah. And is that sort of interest setting um, otherwise uh, uh, promising startups up for failure?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the topic that is discussed most widely in the sort of entrepreneurial community is the lack of growth capital.
0: And so what attributes should a startup founder with an investable idea look for in either an angel investor or an institutional sort of VC?
1: So I think the most important thing is, you know, if you do your angel investing or your seed investing at an unrealistic expectation, it's going to be quite difficult. to Your, your growth capital is already quite difficult to come by. And if you've now come in at unrealistic expectations, it becomes even more difficult. I think particularly you also have to accept the realities of the South African market, And a lot of your growth capital at the moment is sitting with a lot of your, your corporates. Um, and you have to understand the timelines that that, that that sits with. And you have to understand that that's what you're going to have to work with. So I think a lot of people wait too long to get into that game. So they sort of keep on eking out rounds in the early stages and you're never going to scale your business. Get the funding you need in much earlier because otherwise you get distracted. I mean, the one thing that we did do very well at time, we weren't in constant capital raising discussions. You know, we'd managed to secure our deal with MTN very early on. They never took equity on us, but we did a very big distribution agreement with them. It was hard. It was painful. It took a very long time. But, and it was our single-minded focus. You know, the CEO and myself were at the MTN offices virtually every day until that agreement got signed. Um, and that's the kind of tenacity and perseverance you have to have to get a deal done. But once you have that done, you have your lifeblood.
0: Where you uh, as an individual? I mean, after this success with Time, are you making it rain? Are you an angel investor, or given what you've just said about what you know about how much money good ideas need in order to truly succeed, are you are you backing institutional players?
1: So obviously, given my current role, I'm backing growth capital, and um, given my current role, I'm a big believer in scaling really good ideas with strong growth capital. Because I think, you know, if you have a few really good ideas, they can fundamentally change an industry landscape. And I think we need a few really good teams to access the right kind of capital.
0: Well let's talk about your current role and let's talk about what fund size you you would be dealing with typically when you when you talk about investing in good ideas.
1: So obviously, just a bit about where I am currently, I'm at Rand Merchant Insurance Holdings, which is an investment holding vehicle, and we've got a number of big assets sitting here currently. So, you know, we hold um, Discovery, we hold Assurance, we hold MMI, and we hold First Rand through our, our sister vehicle, which is Rand Merchant Bank Holdings. So we've got a beautiful portfolio, which we currently sit on, which has got a lot of momentum, which has got a lot of growth. We've got some amazing entrepreneurs sitting within that, um, and we certainly want to manage that existing portfolio. However, we realize that we are going to see some amazing stuff coming out of South Africa. We're going to see some amazing technology and the ecosystem is being disrupted. Financial services is being changed and we want to participate in that. So we are notionally looking to invest around a billion rand in next generation financial services businesses. And to that extent, we've established Alpha Code, which is a next generation it's a club for next generation for financial services entrepreneurs. So we're looking for the next Adrian Gore, the next Villimerus. We're looking for the guys who's saying, I've got an idea that is going to fundamentally change the landscape of how financial services are delivered. And when we find that team, we want to back them with a lot of growth capital. We're not looking for lots of little ideas. We're looking for a few. We're looking for we're looking for the visionaries who say, I'm in this for the next 20 years. And in the next 20 years, I'm going to lay down my legacy and I'm going to build businesses that change South Africa, that change Africa and change the world. Just like just like our current businesses have done.
0: It's almost counterintuitive to the very popular and sort of well-accepted or well-loved principle of lean startup, which, you know, failing fast and, and getting in, getting out and, you know, I suppose starting with exit in mind in many cases. Are you saying that if you have that mindset, don't bother giving us a call?
1: So I think what we're saying is that we're not yet to create liquidity event for entrepreneurs. We're looking for the guys who want to build their legacy. So the, why the Lean Startup methodology is so important and why I'm involved with the Lean Startup machine is because In order to get to those legacy-creating businesses, you have to be leveraging next-generation thinking. You have to make sure that you are building incredibly lean businesses, and you have to make sure that you are failing fast. Because if you are going to build the next-generation business, you're not going to invest an incredible amount of money up front until you've got the perfect idea. So, iterated. I mean, we did that at time. We tested ideas. We, we we used the lean method. You know, we developed agile. We, you know, we tested ideas. We tested products. We were constantly failing within our business. But we went to market with the product that we knew was going to scale.
0: And so, how many have you found so far? Some good ideas.
1: We've seen a lot of businesses. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't believe how many financial services businesses are out there. What we... We haven't seen many businesses that are fully integrated. We see a lot of product. We don't see a lot of teams who understand how to commercialize businesses. So what we're looking for is well-rounded teams. It's not good enough to just develop a product. This is not Silicon Valley. This South Africa is not build it and they will come. Um, people need to think long and hard about how you can spend ages you know, perfecting the UX. But it's better to go to market with something that's not perfect, but you've got a very clear distribution channel.
0: You gave us a comment or you shared a comment on our sister podcast, the African Tech Roundup uh, on Bitcoin and your take on uh, its potential as a currency and more importantly, the potential of the blockchain to deliver uh, you know, solutions and, and innovation that we're looking forward to. What, what do you see on the horizon as the next big thing in fintech?
1: So I think blockchain is very interesting for, I mean, potentially there could be businesses that come out of it in its own right. But I think it's got very interesting applications for some of our existing businesses. If I think about things like the application of blockchain for trading desks. So if you take an investment bank, if you've got trading desks, if you can do real-time settlement, you can reduce the capital requirements on your trading desks. Because you're reducing your settlement risk, those are very real applications of a technology. Those are things that can radically, those are things that can introduce operational efficiencies within a business. So I think there's certain things that are value chain operational efficiencies, but they could also give rise to business opportunities. So blockchain is one of those that I think could play on both sides.
0: And and how much time do you spend in you know in the corridors of RMI in the boardrooms? Uh, agonizing over what could potentially be a disruptive uh, a disruptive technology to the way uh, a place like RMI has done business.
1: A lot. Um, just to give you an idea, we spent uh, two days with the board in June to actually talk about what are the forces that are changing banking. Um, we did a lot of research we spent time talking to experts all around the world to say what are the big driving forces of change and how do we need to prepare ourselves for that and what are the themes that we should be investing into and um, so we spent a lot of time thinking about that
0: we've had a fantastic chat i've learned a whole lot uh we're winding down now and i've got some fun questions to end everything off on a light note uh but I'm curious about your day to day here at RMI. And um, Alpha Code, of course, is just across across the hall from you. Beautiful facility. You guys have thrown millions into making sure whatever the excuse for not making a success of the bet you're making on them, the businesses you, you'll you have on board, they can't complain about, well, they'll be, chill- they'll be chilling because it's pretty awesome. <laughs> it's pretty comfy. Tell me a little bit about your, your current day to day in terms of your mandate. What is your mandate here at RMI?
1: So the mandate is to work with some of the portfolio companies to think through the big strategic issues. So we do spend some time on that. Um, we act as strategic advisors. We don't get operationally involved. But then the thing that we spend most of our time on is finding new businesses. So we take a lot of meetings. We have lots of cups of coffee. Um, we pound the streets. We—that's uh, m- most of our time is spent. And once we do find businesses that we are interested in, we do a lot of research. So this business is. Really really around meeting people doing lots of research engaging with our stakeholders and building investment cases
0: What are you watching right now on television on the internet or in your free time
1: My favorite program is Silicon Valley by Far <laughs> I love it um I really enjoy Nurse Jackie I really enjoy dark comedy um I love Orange is the New Black and then Ray Donovan started this week and I love Ray Donovan
0: I do not get Orange is the New Black. I, I, I cannot wrap my mind around why that's even a success.
1: I think it is such a raw, gritty program. I think it's just so fantastic to watch a program that is not glamorous. That is, as one of my colleagues described it, you actually feel like you have to take a shower after every episode. It's not feel good. It's funny at times, but it's it's interesting. It's 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 fascinating. I love it. It appeals to a very quirky side of me.
0: And and are you listening to podcasts at all? Is there anything you're listening to that's on your iPod or, or SoundCloud or something?
1: I love Bulletproof Radio, which is David Aspie, um, who wrote about Bulletproof Coffee, and it's all around alternative health therapies, which is really interesting. So I'm very big into alternative health and looking at um, sort of, you know, using a lot of natural, um, natural cures for, for, um, for illness, and it's fascinating. And it's a lot around the connection of mind, body, and spirit. Um, so it's a really good uh, podcast for anyone to listen to.
0: Well, you need to add the African Tech Roundup and now the African Tech Conversations to your subscription list on iTunes, real quick.
1: Well, that went without saying.
0: (laughs) Of course. And so finally, where's your next holiday going to be?
1: So it's going to be down to the Eastern Cape to Sinsa and then also to London for the Rugby World Cup. Ah,
0: pretty nice. You're backing the box, of course.
1: Of course, that's not even a question. I'm married to a complete rugby fanatic.
0: That's fine. And I shouldn't have said that was the last question because the real last question is, is there a question I didn't ask that you wish I had?
1: Um, I think probably a question of what inspires me right now.
0: All right. Well, I'll humor you then. What's inspiring you right now?
1: I think what is inspiring me right now, it's, it's really exciting to be on the other side of the transaction. I think having spent time trying to build a business, I'm really enjoying working with businesses to be that capital provider. Having you know, spent a few years, you know, being in the stage of desperately trying to secure capital and trying to secure, secure lifeblood. Uh, I really enjoy being in this position where we're applying our minds to how best to apply that capital. And um, I really feel having been through that entrepreneurial journey myself, that I do have some of that empathy for what it's like. And um, hopefully some of the lessons I've learned and some of the scars I have will, will hopefully help me in my investor role.
0: Well, good luck to you. And thank you very much, Dominique call it uh, thank you for speaking to us
1: Thank you it was a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to African tech conversations.